Hezbollah makes it official today, Memorial Day, May 27th. This is The World. Hezbollah takes a potentially decisive role in Syria's civil war. They're really in it to win it. They're going to pull out all stops uh, to see if they can make uh, sure that the regime of Bashar al-Assad survives. Also, the challenge of helping Syrian student refugees forced to leave their studies behind. You find people who were studying chemical engineering in Syria and they're washing cars now in Jordan. And with Brazil gearing up to host the Soccer World Cup next year, Brazilian women fight to play the beautiful game too. They call themselves Guerreira or Warriors. Guerreira, to be Guerreira, like in the blood, like you got to fight for this. And how some U.S. veterans are spending this Memorial Day. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Remembering the servicemen and women who died in war, that's what this day, Memorial Day, is supposed to be about. And sadly, there are a lot of American troops in harm's way today, not to mention millions of other soldiers around the globe fighting their own battles. Which brings us to Syria. No good news to report from there today. There is talk of a peace conference there next month. Ahead of any talks, though, the government of President Bashar al-Assad is pulling out all the stops to try to gain a military advantage. And there are new reports of chemical weapons being used. But perhaps the key to the government's successes might be the large reinforcement it's currently getting from Hezbollah. The Lebanese Shiite militant group now openly says it's part of Syria's civil war. Danasi Kambanis joins us from Beirut to help us figure out how this threatens to spread the Syrian fire to the greater neighborhood that is the Mideast. Kambanis is a fellow with the Century Foundation and author of a book on Hezbollah called A Privilege to Die. Hezbollah has quietly been fighting on behalf of the government in the Syrian civil war uh, almost since the beginning. Uh, But over the last month, there's been a real marked escalation in Hezbollah's involvement. They've been the decisive force in the battle over a particular city called Qusayr uh, that's just over the border from Lebanon. And dozens of Hezbollah fighters have been coming back uh, dead in coffins from that battle. And perhaps more importantly, just this weekend, Hezbollah made official uh, what people have known for a long time, which is that they are uh, not only fighting in the Syrian civil war, but they're really in it to win it and that they're going to pull out all stops to see if they can make uh, sure that the regime of Bashar al-Assad survives. I mean, their core mission, though, Hezbollah's core mission, is to oppose Israel. What's in it for brand diversification in the Syrian war? Well, Hezbollah sees the support of the Syrian regime as invaluable to its ability to fight Israel. Uh, But what happened this weekend was that Hassan Nasrallah, the uh, storied leader of Hezbollah, came out and equated the war in Syria with the war against Israel. He said essentially that in Syria, they are fighting a group of Sunni jihadi fundamentalists who are backed by the Israelis and backed by the United States. And uh, a martyr dying there is just as good as a martyr fighting directly against Israel uh, on the Lebanese border. And that is uh, something that seems like a stretch uh, to us. But it sounds very convincing to his own followers, and it really does mark a serious escalation in the commitment of Hezbollah's uh, supporters to this war. 
So, Thanasi, assess for us how this deepens the war, uh, the Syrian war, into Lebanon now. I know there have been a few shells flying into Lebanon from Syria, but if it's not in pure battle terms, at least, uh, how does this drag Lebanon deeper in than it wants to be involved? There's no question this is a a dangerous uh, step up the escalation ladder. It enrages Hezbollah's detractors, and it further polarizes what's fast becoming a a full-on regional proxy war. That said, uh, Hezbollah is really gambling on two things. It's gambling that Israel wants to keep its border with Lebanon quiet, and it's gambling that no one is going to be able to challenge Hezbollah's dominance inside Lebanon. So essentially, Hassan Nasrallah is trying to clarify the rules of the road, and he's saying, we are fighting in this war, and uh, you're welcome to fight us over there in Syria, but don't mess with us here at home in Lebanon. He believes that Hezbollah is strong enough and dominant enough that no one will will, uh, take them on. But of course, any strategy that depends on everybody being reasonable in a time like this is uh, is a bad bet. Uh, There's a lot of room for miscalculation and instability here. Has the Syria conflict created any pressure points in the region, Thanasi, that you're seeing or concerned about that the rest of us are not thinking about? Well, you know, as a as a very important data point in the semi-cold, semi-hot war between Iran and the Gulf states, the Syrian war is a major is a major factor. Uh, we have these incredibly rich Sunni monarchies in the Gulf who are terrified of Iran. They're terrified of an Iranian nuclear bomb, and they see the war in Syria as a place where they can try and turn the tide against Iran. Uh, Now, I think in the long term, there's some dangerous spillover effects that we can see in that area that that, that straddles the the all-important Persian Gulf sea lane. And that has always been a delicate flashpoint, and I think this war makes uh, makes it all the more insecure. Journalist Thanasi Kambanis, a fellow at the Century Foundation, speaking with us from Beirut. Thank you as always, Thanasi. Great to be with you. Another statistic that's hard to fathom is the number of Syria's war refugees. The U.N. puts it at 1.5 million. A third of them are in Jordan. Adrian Fricke and her colleague Keith Wattenpaul went there last month to talk with one specific group of Syrian refugees, university students. They did their investigation for the International Institute of Education and the UC Davis Human Rights Initiative. Fricke says Syria is unusual in the region because it offers free tuition to anyone who makes a grade, and that includes women. The reason that Dr. Wattenpai and I were so interested in this group of people is that they represent Syria's human capital. They represent the best hope for Syria in a post-conflict setting to rebuild because every country needs engineers, people who can teach, people who can provide the necessary structure for society in order to avoid a failed state. Describe the scene on the ground in these refugee camps, in these circles and cliques of students when you were there. I mean, what are their concerns? What did they tell you? Well, we spoke to a number of students, and it's important to note that the majority of Syrian refugees in Jordan actually do not live in refugee camps. And that means that it's very difficult to provide services to them. The majority of them do not have any real resources, even if they have the paperwork to attend university. And those people are extremely frustrated. In a sense, you find people who 
we're studying chemical engineering in Syria and they're washing cars now in Jordan when they're lucky enough to get those jobs. And that's a common refugee story. Right. You asked specifically about the students in Zaatari camp in Jordan. The largest camp is the Zaatari refugee camp, which by some estimates is the third or fourth largest city in Jordan at this time because based on population. And we spoke to a lot of women students actually in Zaatari camp. I would say that there's a lot of frustration because the feeling is that they have a lot to give. You know, for example, there are people who would almost finish their studies in primary education, but were not able. And of course, there's a tremendous need to teach preschool or kindergarten or first grade within a refugee camp. But those jobs within schools are reserved for Jordanians, which makes perfect sense. It's frustrating to the Syrians, I think, that they can't organize for themselves. It was very touching, though. We spoke to one young woman who said that not only she, but three of her brothers were all university students, and one actually was a medical student. And she said, you know, in our house, studying is holy. And it was very touching because mm. her house at the time is a UNHCR tent. And I think that mm. for me, it's uh, very meaningful because there's so much concern about who are these refugees and what does it mean for Jordan and other host countries to have such a large population of people? And of course, the concern is that these are people who can be politicized and radicalized very easily. Because well, I was just going to ask. I mean, you, you talk about the frustration. I mean, we've, for obvious reasons, have been talking about radicalization a lot on the program and how alienation and isolation plays into that. I mean, are we looking at a kind of choice for these refugees as they're either going to get, a, get an education or they're going to get radicalized? Well, we certainly hope that's not the choice. We hope it's not a binary. But I think it's a concern. And I can tell you that our impression was that there was certainly a, a lot of political consciousness. I mean, it's very difficult for someone who's been displaced from their country not to have a political opinion about what's going on. But we did not get the sense that the vast majority of these students were actively engaged in politics or if they were, that that was in a very nonviolent way. So I asked Adrian Fricke, what's the solution for these young, educated Syrians? She says it has to be a regional one. We've looked at the possibility of trying to get some of these students into the Egyptian educational system. An important factor is that these are people who are studying in Arabic. And while countries like Turkey have extended incredibly generous support, Turkish is a very difficult language, particularly at an academic level. And these are also not students who are used to studying in English. Mm. So they speak Arabic, and it's important that they continue their studies in Arabic. They're also more likely to go back to Syria and rebuild if they stay in the region. Adrian Fricke consults on human rights issues. She recently returned from Jordan, where she spoke with Syrian student refugees. In France, you've got a lesbian love story with explicit sex scenes winning the top prize at the Cannes Film Festival yesterday. Meantime, in Paris, you've got this. That was also yesterday as tens of thousands in Paris protested the new marriage for all law. That law sets a scene for France's first same-sex weddings in a couple of days. It's a striking contrast, this movie and these protests, and seems to say something about the confusing nature of the debate over same-sex marriage and gay rights in France. Stephen Erlanger is the New York Times bureau chief in Paris. You were at those demonstrations yesterday, Stephen. For you, what does this contrast say about attitudes in France right now? What's going on? Well, I often think of France as a Catholic country where nobody goes to church. 
And what you had in the heart of the demonstration was not so much an anti-gay protest, but a protest from cultural and religious conservatives about what they consider the violation of the institution of marriage. They have no real problem with equal rights for gay couples, but they think they should have something other than marriage. But then the demonstration was taken over in the past few months by a more broad protest against the policies of President Francois Hollande, who's very unpopular. And then on the fringes, as you've heard, you have some people called ultras who are just looking for a fight, mostly from the far right. And what's behind the whole notion of marriage being sacrosanct? Because many heterosexual couples don't marry in France. They just live together. Well, this is exactly right. This is part of the great confusion. And not only that, I mean, marriage in France is a secular ceremony. The only legal marriages take place um, done by an official of the state since the revolution. And you can get remarried afterwards in religious terms. But more and more couples are living together short of marriage or even in something they call a pax, which is a civil union which was actually designed for gay couples, but has been almost entirely used by heterosexual couples who kind of see it as a a trial or something. So these conservatives and far-right demonstrators saying no to same-sex marriage likely won't change those same-sex marriages from happening later this week. But, I mean, contrast that with what happened in Cannes at the film festival this weekend uh, and that movie Blue is the Warmest Color, three-hour lesbian romance, top prize at Cannes. Have you heard any comments on this from the conservative demonstrators? Well, oddly, no. I mean, the film, which very few people have seen yet, is a love story between a young woman, maybe 15, and a slightly older woman. And it's about philosophy and growing up. But it does have what is said to be a 10-minute love scene between the two girls. My guess is it will be edited down before it's distributed. But the main thing to remember, too, about France is that it's also a very liberal country and it's a more sexualized culture than in America. It's far less prudish. And somehow the world of art is considered sacrosanct. It's uh, not the same as the world of the street. Yeah, well, this weekend certainly underscored that, didn't it? New York Times, Stephen Erlanger in Paris. Thank you. Thank you. Still ahead, you can freeze things for centuries and they can survive. We'll have details later here on The World from PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. For all you soccer fanatics out there, it's only a year away. Brazil will host the Soccer World Cup starting in June 2014. And what a host. Brazil's national team has won the event an unprecedented five times. Much has been written over the years about why Brazil is so dominant. Brazilian boys are encouraged to play as soon as they can walk. But what about the other half of the population? The world's Jason Margolis takes a look. Brazil had a law from 1941 until 1979. Girls and women were not allowed to play soccer. Not professionally, not in schools, not even for fun. The law stated women will not be allowed to practice any kinds of sports that are incompatible with the female nature. Three years after the law was lifted, Alini Pellegrino was born. 
Alini, as she's known, went on to become the captain of the Brazilian women's national team for eight straight years. She's been on three Olympic teams and played in the Women's World Cup twice, but her rise was not easy. Brazil is the country of soccer, but people don't know it's the country of men's soccer. All of the girls of my generation played with young boys. I didn't see women playing on TV. There was nobody to look up to or be inspired by. I played because I wanted to play. Elini now heads the Guerreras Project, along with Caitlin Fisher, an American who came to Brazil to play soccer. I met the two women at a cafe in the Ipanema neighborhood of Rio de Janeiro. Guerreras translates into female warriors. Being a fighter, being, you know, face-to-face with machismo and this kind of bastion of masculinity and trying to, to carve a space for yourself. Fisher taps the veins in her arm. Guerrera, to be guerrera, like in the blood, like you got to fight for this. The Guerreras Project brings together athletes, artists, and activists to promote women's soccer as a way to advance the discussion of gender equality. Fisher first moved to Brazil nine years ago. She had been an all-Ivy League player in the U.S., Then she was signed by the world-renowned Santos Club near the city of Sao Paulo. This was Pele's team. Fisher's excitement, though, about becoming a professional female soccer player here quickly ran into reality. There were two Santos teams, the men's and the women's. We weren't allowed to use their training fields. We couldn't play in the stadium. We couldn't use their buses for transportation. Waking up in the morning, walking 50 minutes in order to get to a training field, finding out the men are playing on the field and you can't use it, walking another 45 minutes to another field, training for two hours, walking home, washing your uniform at lunchtime with your hands to hang it up to dry so it's ready for the next morning, putting your second uniform on, and then having 45 minutes before you walk to your afternoon training practice um, and going, we're playing for Pele's club right now? They had few fans and more than a few detractors. Women who play soccer in Brazil are commonly called zapatón, or big shoes. It's slang for lesbian, not meant in a kind way. Soccer here has had one major breakthrough, though. Marta! Marta. She was voted the best female soccer player in the world five straight years. She's the face of women's soccer in Brazil and much of the world, but Marta largely stands alone. Just a notch lower, consider the case of Alini. Again, she was captain of the Brazil women's national team for eight straight years, the female equivalent of someone like Ronaldinho, an international superstar who makes tens of millions in advertisements and salary. I asked Alini if she gets recognized much. Not much, not really that much. People sometimes recognize me here as an athlete. I have the mannerisms of an athlete. The few people who do know me shout out, Alini. I hug them and chat with them. Alini is an articulate, friendly, attractive woman who is awesome at soccer. She's never been hired to do an endorsement. I visited the Central Olimpico, a training facility for young athletes in Sao Paulo. I watch girls under 13 practicing. These girls are the best of the best, and it shows. Strong, crisp passes and great fundamentals. They were fun to watch. The group of 18 and 19-year-olds then strode onto the field. I asked to speak with a couple of them. They said they're a team. They speak as a team. So I interviewed about a dozen of them at once. I asked them if they've been given the same opportunities as the boys. One girl stepped forward and said, All of us have already suffered. She said we lack sponsorship, support, and media attention. All of the girls said they would like to play professionally, but many don't see how. 
I asked what impact the World Cup being hosted in Brazil might have on women's soccer here. (laughs) A few girls said it won't help in any way. One said she was a bit hopeless for the future of female soccer in Brazil. And I asked, do they suffer insults? (laughs) A lot, they all said. It didn't seem to bother them much, though. Change is slowly occurring. Mariani da Silva Pisani is doing her PhD work on Brazilian female soccer. I met her at the Centro Olimpico. We spoke through an interpreter while she gestured to the young girls playing. Work like this being done here at the Olympic Center is sponsored by the mayor and the governor's office. It's something that improves the training of girls at this level. But in the next breath, she adds that this training center is one of a kind. It's very disappointing that there's only this center. We have half a million girls playing soccer in the country, so it's very disappointing. And funding for this program is said to be in jeopardy. I also spoke with Giovanna, the youngest girl on the field. She's 10. She had long, curly hair tied back in a ponytail. I asked her if a lot of the girls her age in her neighborhood play soccer. No, just one, she says. She started playing with the boys when she was four. I asked her how come she plays. Because I like it, she says. And her dad played with her too, which got her into it. And what do the boys think of her playing with them? They think it's cool. I spoke with another young girl, Nicole, who is 12. I asked her if she thinks she'll have the same opportunities to play as the boys when she gets a little older. Yes, she says, because I play well. These girls haven't experienced much discrimination or hardship, but these girls are the best of the best. The precious few have been given the resources to play. That's still extremely rare for girls in Brazil. Back in Rio, I'd heard about a coach known for getting girls involved. Paulo Bento Cesar coaches youth soccer in Vigigal, a favela in Rio on a steep hillside overlooking Ipanema Beach. He says after 25 years, he's just known as coach. I went to Vigigal on a holiday morning to meet Paulo. About 30 boys were at the field. There was one girl spoke with Paulo through an interpreter. I'd heard of Vigigal and Paulo as this great teacher of young girls. I'm a, I'm a little surprised that, you know, I thought this was going to be where I'd see the girls. Paulo says he does have girls who play in his program, about 15. I asked, and how many boys? 150. 150. Back down in Ipanema. I asked Elimi if Brazil, being the country of soccer, has any special responsibility to cultivate the girls' game, too. It should. It should. It doesn't, but it should. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, Rio de Janeiro. If you want to see photos of Alini and the Brazilian girls kicking the ball around, visit us at theworld.org. And while you're there, check out some of Jason's other recent stories from Brazil. You're listening to The World on PRI. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, 
now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who are making a difference in their communities. Learn how nonprofit organizations may earn a $20,000 grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH in Boston. For the past week, Israelis have been talking about an issue that's been hotly debated in the U.S., gun control. Few private citizens in Israel have permission to own firearms, and there's even a strict limit on how many bullets they can have. But a mass shooting at an Israeli bank last week has authorities calling for even tighter restrictions. The world's Matthew Bell has our story from Jerusalem. It's the kind of thing that doesn't really happen in Israel. A disgruntled customer walked into a bank in the southern city of Beersheba last week. He took out a handgun and opened fire, killing four people and injuring three. Then he killed himself. The gunman was a former border police officer and security guard. He had a gun permit. But officials at Israel's Ministry for Public Security say it's time to re-examine the country's gun laws. We don't believe in the culture of firearms or culture of weapons. Moshe Dayan works on the licensing of firearms at the ministry. He points out that Israel has no Second Amendment, giving citizens the right to own guns. Firearms are mostly reserved for the police, the army, and other security agencies, Dayan says, and in special circumstances for members of the Israeli public, for instance, if you live in a settlement in the West Bank. We believe that sometimes it's needed. Where it's needed, it should be rather carefully checked, as carefully as possible. Dayan's boss, the Minister of Public Security, says big changes are needed. Immediately after the bank shooting, he was quoted saying that Israel needs to limit the number of guns in the hands of private citizens. That's probably not something you'd hear out of an American official's mouth. But the reaction from some Israeli gun owners would sound familiar. At a basement firing range in an industrial section of Jerusalem, a shooting instructor who gives his name as Dove says authorities are about to make a big mistake. Of course I'm worried about new gun restrictions, he says. Dove is rare in that he owns five handguns. If the proposed reforms pass, he might have to give up most of them or at least have them locked up at work. He goes on to present a common argument against gun control heard in the U.S. The government, Dove says, is going to end up taking guns away from law-abiding citizens and leaving them in the hands of criminals and terrorists. For the sake of comparison, roughly a third of American households are thought to have guns. In Israel, around 2% of the population legally owns a firearm. Ronan Rabani is the owner of the firing range. He believes that Israel's security depends on the members of that tiny gun-owning minority. They are not bad people. They are the best people and they are the, the strength double for the police. They double the strength of the police. They are all over the place. But Moshe Dayan from the Ministry of Public Security says, as far as he knows, citizens pulling out their weapons to stop a criminal or terrorist has done more harm than good. This is why our policy is always uh, looking for the balancing between the need and the dangers. Unlike in the U.S., there's always an armed guard on duty at Israeli schools, but one proposed change in the country's gun regulations would require security guards to leave their weapons locked up at work rather than carry them to and from home. 
I asked one security guard at a school in Jerusalem who didn't want to give his name if that worries him. Terrorism, uh, there is, but not everywhere, not every second, not every minute here. God is with me all the time, so I'm not worried about what. What should I worry about? Of course, he says he needs a gun while on duty at the school, but frankly, he adds, the gun is heavy, it's uncomfortable to carry, and he would just as soon make his daily commute without it. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. The GeoQuiz today takes us to a calmer part of the globe, the most northern part of the Canadian Arctic, and to a large island. It's part of the territory of Nunavut, one of those cold places where climate change is becoming more and more apparent. Ice sheets are breaking up and glaciers are melting. One of them is the Teardrop Glacier. As it recedes, some interesting Arctic plants are coming into view. They've been frozen under the ice for at least 400 years. We're going to talk with a biologist who's trying to regenerate some of those Arctic plants in a few minutes. But first, you need to come up with the name of Canada's third largest island. When the Associated Press established a bureau in North Korea in 2012, David Gutenfelder began traveling there. He was one of the first Western photographers to get access, limited access, inside this incredibly closed country. And a few months ago, when North Korea opened up a 3G network to foreigners, Gutenfelder was able to Instagram images in real time. I follow his work, and his photos are fascinating. I'm not just talking about images of big orchestrated marches and enormous statues. He captures the little telling stuff. Soldiers putting on ice skates, a poster at a barbershop showing different hairstyles, empty banquet halls. It's a peek into a remote place. Gutenfelder says he first got interested during a brief assignment more than a decade ago. In 2000, there were real changes going on. At that time, the country had been divided for 50 years. And one of the biggest things that was happening is that there were family reunions. For the first time in five decades, they were letting people come across the border, across the DMZ, and see one another. And imagine you lost your brother when you were 10 years old, and now you're 60, and you get to see him again for the first time. So I'd been covering war my whole career, and I was suddenly like covering a story that to be honest, I didn't really know that much about. And I was working in like these boring hotel lobbies and I kind of didn't get it, didn't get it visually. And then I just saw all this emotion. The mothers touching the faces of their sons for the first time in 50 years and people crying. They had three days together, then they had to go home. And the bus was pulling away and people were touching the glass in the bus, and this man was chasing the bus down the street and weeping. He chased the bus for like a block to say goodbye to his brother, I think it was. It had a huge impact on me about what kinds of photography was important, and it made me very curious about North and South Korea. I started pushing to go there. It's been a sort of 10-year-long obsession, and Part of the reason why I want to do it it was because of those first family reunions. The first time I went to North Korea, I went with Madeleine Albright, who was the Secretary of State at the time. And I went as the pool photographer to follow her around during her trip, which at the time was the highest level American diplomatic meeting. And on the second day, I photographed her together with Kim Jong-il. It was one of the most 
<laughs> surreal and interesting things I've ever done in my career. I was the only one there. It was just a handshake. And every photographer in the world has to take pictures of handshakes. And it's not especially interesting or fun to do. And it's not that hard. But I was really worried because I was like the only photographer in the room. And I was afraid I would blow it. <laughs> and I was standing with Madeleine Albright in this room that has this massive mural of like a giant wave on the wall. And there's a carpet that I think was green with all these flowers. It's a very surreal looking place and Madeline Albright was standing next to me very nervous and she asked me what do you think I should where do you think I should stand what should I do and I said I don't know and then the door opened and Kim Jong-il walked into the room I heard people gasp I felt like I'd been watching a television show for years and then I just stepped into the screen and I was in standing in the middle of the tv show or something it was so surreal the whole trip was really different than the trips that I do now I mean at that time it was more tightly controlled they drew the curtains on the bus as we came in from the airport, and we were told not to take pictures from the bus windows. There was black plastic sheeting over my window in my hotel, so I couldn't see outside. I felt like it wasn't real at all then. So over the years, every time I've gone back, I've had more access. I've seen more. I've actually I've met people. I've seen real things. And I had this transformation I kind of feel like that's what I'm trying to do with my photography is to take people who see my pictures through the same process. When they opened up the 3G local network and suddenly I could post pictures or tweet from the streets from North Korea, that was more revolutionary than it would be anywhere else in the world, for sure. It's sort of anything goes, I can just stop and take pictures of all these little mundane things in life that aren't really so-called newsworthy. These are the things you run past on your way to covering the news. You know, a picture of bar snacks or um, a little yellow computer cover over a computer terminal. And none of them are great pictures, the way photographers describe great pictures. Oh, that's a great picture. None of them are like that. They're little pieces of some kind of story that's starting to emerge when you look at all of them together. You know, it has a, as big of an impact probably as my professional daily newspaper work does. I'm definitely not seeing everything I want to see in the country. I'm trying to dig as deep as I possibly can, and I know that I'm not photographing anywhere near everything that's going on in the country, especially the darkest things. But this is a long-term project, and we're pushing to do as much as we can. If I'm not there, the only pictures that we're getting out of Korea are distributed by Korean Central News Agency where propagandist is not a dirty word. So for us to be there, as limiting as it can be, it's better than not being there. I really, truly believe that. That was AP photographer David Gutenfelder. You can see some of his photos, including bar snacks and North Korean computer covers, at theworld.org. Some Arctic plants frozen under a glacier for 400 years are starting to see the light of day. Catherine Lafarge is going to tell us about the so-called Ice Age plants and her efforts to regenerate them. She's a biologist at the University of Alberta. So, uh, Catherine, what do they look like and where exactly did you find them? Well, these are plants that are coming out from the margin of the glacier. And basically, they are bryophyte communities, but also vascular plants. 
So these were found up underneath the Teardrop Glacier, which is in Sverdrup Pass, which is in central Ellesmere Island, which is at 79 degrees north. And this is a broad valley that supports a very rich fauna for that latitude north. Um, it's got muskox and wolves and foxes and Arctic hare. You know, it's a very rich valley. Ellesmere Island is the answer to our geoquiz today. So you said bryophytes. You're taking me back to uh, high school biology. Those are mosses, right? Those are mosses and liverworts and hornworts, which are early land plants. They really form a transition between green algae and vascular plants. So 400 years. I mean, you must have been surprised to see these things growing again. Well, I was pretty surprised. I think the great surprise was going along the margin, looking at these large communities coming out from underneath the glacier. And, you know, they look discolored. They look kind of blackish. And then when you pick up a hunk of it and you start looking at the stems, they look a bit greenish. And so when we first went there into this particular site, we, you know, took the material back to the tent and started looking at it and started wondering, well, why are they so green? Like, does this suggest anything that they could actually have been cryopreserved or mm. frozen and have the ability to be viable? So we decided to have it radiocarbon dated so we would be sure that, you know, of the age, of course, they are coming out from right underneath the glacier. So you know that they are most likely Little Ice Age age, and that is precisely what they ended up dating. We ended up finding that some of the stems were actually showing some new lateral growth. So that was pretty exciting, and we thought, well, okay, were they just covered that way and they just maintained that extremely different coloration than the main body of the stem, or is this really an indication that these guys are regrowing after they, you know, are exhumed from beneath the ice. So we went back up and collected probably 140 samples. And of those, we had, I think it was seven subglacial samples that produced juvenile plants from parent material. Am I to understand that you've got basically an Ice Age era garden? Yeah, they are little Ice Age populations. Wow. Is that the first time this has ever happened? It sounds just fascinating. From subglacial conditions, I've not, I'm not aware of any other study that's done this. Catherine, you used the phrase cryopreserve before. I mean, that's kind of exciting, too. How important is your research to the idea of being able to revive thought-to-be extinct life forms? I think this is a really important discovery as far as understanding glaciers as biological reservoirs. I mean, we know that, you know, in the ice you can get fungi and bacteria and that can be preserved in ice and that but we've never considered land plants being able to survive beneath or in a glacier ice so basically we're looking at the subglacial ecosystem and realizing that there may be a lot more that is preserved than you know we previously thought Catherine Lafarge, a biologist at the University of Alberta and director of the Cryptogamic Herbarium there, will post a link to her research published today in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Catherine, great to meet you. Thanks. Thank you very much. Still ahead for this Memorial Day, a pretty extraordinary bit of history that you may have never heard about here on The World from PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It's Memorial Day, and all day I've been seeing and hearing stories of the men and women 
who have fallen in service to the U.S. and those who are gathering to honor them. Today at Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia, President Obama spoke of the consequences of sending people into battle. And for those of us who bear the solemn responsibility of sending these men and women into harm's way, we know the consequences all too well. I feel that every time I meet a wounded warrior, every time I visit Walter Reed, and every time I grieve with the Gold Star family. I want to take a few minutes to pick up on something the president mentioned there, Gold Star family. That's a family who has lost a son or daughter or husband or wife in battle. To understand the history, you have to go back to the years after the First World War. More than 100,000 Americans died in that war, and many of them were buried on foreign soil. Then 12 years later, something remarkable happened. From 1930 to 33, nearly 7,000 mothers and widows traveled to Europe to visit the graves of their loved ones. It was all arranged and paid for by the U.S. government. They were called Gold Star Mother Pilgrimages, and John Graham's written a book about them. He explained why it took more than a decade for Congress to act. This is before the New Deal, before anything remotely related to spending money for relief programs or things of that sort came to mind. And it took Congress about 10 years to wrestle with this issue of what exactly is the government's responsibility to family members who've lost children or husbands in war. But at the end of the day, uh, after about 10 years, Congress got it right. They appropriated the money to send, like you said, almost 7,000 women overseas to visit these graves. And they had the Army, the Quartermaster Service from the U.S. Army, conduct and arrange all the trips. And and going right after the war seemed a little crazy because some of these battlefields, I mean, it was like hell on earth and nothing much had changed since the last battles. Well, and that's exactly right. If you think about the scope of World War I, like you said, the U.S. lost total about 116,000 men in the war. That pales in comparison to the British and the French that lost more than a million men. And, and the battlefields and the cemeteries were just not ready to go. They weren't really ready to support any kind of visits. And a lot of the Ameri- the uh, U.S. government gave the families a choice. They could leave the son overseas in one of the cemeteries to be built, or they could have the body shipped back home. And a lot of these bodies weren't returned until two or three years after the war. So it was something that even if that notion had come to mind, it was just too soon. Now, these, these women who were known uh, as the Gold Star Mothers, they flew flags during World War I with a gold star on it for each child of theirs who had died in Europe. I mean, there must have been many of these moms. How were they chosen for these trips, these pilgrimages? Uh, it's interesting. The government had on file all the correspondence available for the soldiers who were lost overseas. And for the women who chose to leave the body overseas, what they would do is send them correspondence. It was an invitation saying the government would like to take you overseas for a pilgrimage. Would you like to go, yes or no? And the ones who said yes, the government would then meticulously contact them, send them an itinerary, send them information on when their trip was going to take place, how to get a passport. Everything else was taken care of for them, and uh, it was all based on who was able to opt in. So off this group of mothers go on this incredible trip, traveling by ship to Europe, what was the itinerary? These trips took about five weeks from start to finish. Uh, Most all of them took a train to New York City, sailed overseas on a first-class ship that took about a week. All the groups were taken then to Paris, and the groups had two or three days of sightseeing and ceremonies and things like that in Paris. In fact, it's interesting to talk to you today because exactly 80 years ago today, 
the last group of mothers in 1933 was visiting Paris today as we speak. Mm. Um, after that, what happened is the mothers were broken up by what cemetery they were to go to. And that sub-party traveled by itself throughout the French countryside, stayed near the cemetery. The goal, the objective was to get these women to the cemetery to decorate their son's grave for, say, three or four different days. Uh, the women made their way back to Paris, uh, another day or two of sightseeing, and then back to New York City and back home. And like I said, it took about five weeks total from start to finish for each woman. So we're talking a dozen or so years after these women's kids have fallen dead in, in the field of battle. I mean, do you, do you have the story of one mother and her account and how it all changed her life? There she is at this field of battle, these graves, and she's there for the first time. In my book, I profile the Ziegler family from Durand, Illinois. Uh, Louise Ziegler uh, lost her son. Uh, Fred Ziegler was her son. And she brought her daughter, Grace Ziegler, with her. Uh, and the part that was fascinating for this, and I profile this in my book, is Grace kept a daily diary uh, that was published in the Rockford, Illinois newspaper when she got back. And they talked about the trips. They talked about the sightseeing. And it's, it really is just a marvelous story. And Fred also had sent home a lot of his letters, and uh, the family shared his letters with me as well. And as he got overseas, he's uh, full of uh, enthusiasm, ready to go whip the Kaiser. Mm -hmm. And as he gets closer and closer into battle, his letters take on a more serious tone. His division was considered to be one of the most gassed divisions in the whole war, suffering gas attacks. Uh, he'd been in the lines for days and days and days, hadn't changed his shoes or socks hadn't shaved for more than a couple weeks, and he signed his letter, final letter home, Fred Ziegler, not Fred, because he knew it was coming, and he wow. was killed basically a month before the war ended. So the evocative part about all these stories is the soldier, how he died, and then also the mother and the family members that went overseas. That was John Graham, author of the Gold Star Mother's Pilgrimages of the 1930s, with that incredible story about American mothers and their sons who died in World War I. We try to stay in regular touch with our online community of war veterans, and we reached out to them today. We wanted to find out more about the rituals they've created around Memorial Day. I visit the veteran graves for my family and place flowers upon each one. That from Timothy Powell, a retired Marine sergeant who served from 1987 to 95. Powell also writes that he takes at least one extra flower and places it upon a veteran's grave who has long been forgotten, say from the Civil War, to honor and remember his sacrifice. For Arthur Kitchen, this Memorial Day is a very sad day. He tells us that his father, a World War II vet, passed away two weeks ago. I am lost, Kitchen writes. And finally, this vet emailed us today, Staff Sergeant Glenn Harrison. He's going to be redeployed to Afghanistan. Everything's volunteered nowadays. They all raise their hand. And, you know, from the men and women that came before me and the ones coming after me, you know, I just I always think about the ones that came before me. They paved the way to make it easier for me. But, uh, you know, my last trip to Afghanistan, you know, we lost a few guys there. And, you know, you feel for them. You know, you don't really want to call their families or nothing like that because, you know, that's very personal. But, you know, you just take a minute and, uh, you know, I get goosebumps just talking about it. But, uh, you know, you just you feel for it. You know, it's it's a brotherhood thing. With his redeployment to Afghanistan just a few weeks away, Harrison mowed the lawn at his house today. He says he was also looking through old pictures of buddies he had been deployed with. As he told us, he's been focusing on the ones with their helmets hanging on their rifles. 
We leave you with that image on this Memorial Day. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. We'll be back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Annenberg Foundation. And by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.